Welcome to Roll to Save, the RPG history podcast. Episode 1, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Hello and welcome to Roll to Save, the RPG history podcast, where we take a fond look at role-playing games from yesteryear. I'm your host, Ian. This is a rework of episode 1, because we've had a couple of pieces of feedback. The first piece, well, it seemed that the initial podcast was far too long. Apologies for this, we are new to this podcasting game and we're passionate about a subject, and consequently, we had a lot to say about it. Secondly, there were a couple of sections that were far too quiet. Apparently, it sounded like I was reading a bedtime story. Given that I'm no Tom Hardy, that's probably quite a creepy prospect. Therefore, we've decided to split this podcast into three parts. The first will cover the history of the game, the second its setting and system, and the third part will be a roundtable discussion. I've also messed around with the sound, so hopefully it sounds a bit better too. Oh, and I've ordered a new mic. After all, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. In this episode, we take a look at Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, Games Workshop's first in-house RPG set in their self-styled, grim and perilous world of adventure. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay has a fond place in the heart of many gamers, especially British gamers, and was a novel take on the fantasy genre in a day and age where everything was very heroic and noble bright. For those of you unfamiliar with it, you'll quickly learn that while some games lent towards magic and great deeds of daring do, Warhammer was far grittier and every man in its feel. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Tell us where we're off to, voiceover lady. History. Back in the mid-1980s, White Dwarf was a very different magazine to the glorified catalogue it has become today. Issue 82 released in October of 1986, still bore the strapline of the role-playing games monthly. The contents very much reflected that. This issue saw reviews for the AD&D Dungeoneer's Survival Guide, the Paranoia Adventure Orc Busters, the excellent Call of Cthulhu doubleheader of The Vanishing Conjurer and the Statue of the Sorcerer, still one of my favourite Call of Cthulhu supplements, an AD&D adventure, a brand new fantasy RPG called Sky Realms of Journey, and the board game Kings and Things. In addition to this, there was an AD&D scenario set in Terry Pratchett's Discworld, a traveller adventure, not to mention information and running informants, or narcs as we judges call them, in the Judge Dread role-playing game. Mixed in amongst these were the usual blend of adverts, publicising such delights as GW Bolt Games, first edition Paranoia Supplements, D&D modules, the usual avalanche of mail-order firms peddling their wares and, in a move that would stun people that have only ever seen White Dwarf in its more modern incarnations, only three pages advertising Citadel miniatures. However, this issue was special. 
Sandwiched amidst all this goodness was a pullout advertising a new role-playing game. Embossed across a dark grey page were the words Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, a world of perilous adventure. Presumably the grim would be added at a later date. Inside this pullout were two pages of fiction. Fiction that had a rather grim and unsettling ending which made it quite clear to the reader that whatever was being advertised here was not set in the shiny, heroic, high magic world of D&D. There then followed a brief explanation of the game's setting, a bit about the system, making it abundantly clear that the combat would be fast, deadly and bloody, and then information on the package itself and how it was going to be supported in the future. The pullout was also lavishly illustrated and ended with a paragraph of fiction that sounded far more Call of Cthulhu than D&D. Like a lot of gamers back then, this went straight on my Christmas list for 1986 as a must-have present. And what a present it was, a beautiful hardback that weighed in at just shy of 400 pages and it was absolutely packed with information. Seriously, you could concuss someone with this book. Unlike a lot of RPGs whose rule books were more like pamphlets or which saw their information spread across several different books, D&D, I'm looking at you, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay tried to cram everything you needed into one package. As well as the rules needed to play, which took up the first half of the book, it included background in the religions of the world, a 40-page bestiary that covered nearly every conceivable creature a games master would want to throw at their players, a massive guide to the setting, and a full, ready-to-play scenario. Once of such powerhouses as Tony Ackland, Dave Andrews, Colin Dixon, Jez Goodwin, John Sibick and John Blanche, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was absolutely crammed with amazing black and white pictures and some outstanding colour plates, all of which did a great job of helping the reader visualise this low magic, gritty, and dare I say it, grim and perilous world. The cover? An absolute masterpiece. Published almost simultaneously with the main rulebook, and designed to let new owners know that GW were firmly intent on supporting their new baby, were a couple of supplements. The first was a set of dungeon floor plans. The rulebook made it quite clear the Games Workshop would be very happy if you bought their miniatures to use in your adventures, and the Enemy Within campaign pack. Most long-time gamers will have heard of the Enemy Within being spoken of in hushed reverence as one of the best RPG campaigns of all time. One of the factors that set it up for so much success was the publication of this pack. Consisting of a flimsy cardboard cover, a 56-page booklet, a map and some handouts, this was the publication that would breathe life into the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay setting and, arguably, help build the foundation for the rich world the Games Workshop would go on to create in later years. Not only did it provide detailed information on the history, people and places of the Empire, the main setting for Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, it also gave a guide to the tone and setting that the GM should affect even offering notes that inject humour into the proceedings. 
it also came with an introductory adventure, but the main takeaway from reading this pack was clear. The setting and the atmosphere of this game was a far cry from that of existing fantasy RPGs. Rather than medieval Tolkien, this game was set in what could only be described as early Renaissance Germany. And unlike other games, magic was not at the centre of things. Instead, this setting very much concentrated on the everyman. Rather than having players who were heroic paladins or powerful wizards, the average Warhammer Fantasy roleplay character was more likely to be an artisan's apprentice, a trader, or even a grave robber. These were characters who became adventurers because they were bored with the mundane life they lived, not because of any heroic calling. All in all, it promised to be a very different game. 1987 saw four releases for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, including a character pack, which was really just a pad of character sheets, photocopying was still expensive back then, two adventures, and a guide to the city of Middenheim. The adventures, Shadows Over Bogenhafen and Death on the Reich, are both classics that stand up even today. Shadows was the first supplement I bought for the game, and it has a very special place in my heart. In a day and age where people were becoming bored of dungeon crawls and wilderness treks, Shadows showed that it was possible to make an urban investigation-based adventure for a fantasy setting. It is also incredibly well-paced, with just the right level of challenge for a beginning party, and it comes with the usual range of incredible handouts and maps that help the whole thing come alive. I also need to give a shout out to the illustrations. To this day, Shadows remains one of the most atmospherically illustrated supplements I have ever seen for an RPG. After all, when you have Will Rees and Ian Miller doing the art what is essentially a horror game, how can that fail to hit the mark? I remember as a teenager finding the cover art particularly unnerving. I won't spoil anything, but Shadow strikes that perfect balance between investigation and action, and it should appeal to almost anyone. After all, who doesn't like foiling the machinations of evil cultists masquerading as the great and good of society? Death of the Reich was Warhammer Fantasy's roleplay's first big box product coming as it did in a big box. As well as a sprawling adventure, the book also included handouts, a large full-colour map, and a booklet entitled River Life of the Empire. Without giving away spoilers, the PCs come into possession of a boat fairly early on in this adventure. With this, they are free to go here, there, and everywhere throughout the Empire. This is what makes this adventure so good. It is essentially a sandbox that gives the adventurers free reign. While I'm not 100% sure of this, I'm fairly certain that this was one of the very first times that this was attempted and successfully executed in a fantasy RPG, and one of the reasons it worked so well was down to the River Life booklet. Here were all the details that the GM needed to keep life on the river interesting, to allow the PCs to make a bit of cash by trading and, most importantly, to make the whole thing feel consistent and really engender a feeling of player agency. The main book 
has a whole action-packed adventure in it, complete with cultists, skaven, the undead and a fully detailed spooky castle, but it also makes clear that the players can take as much time as they want messing around in their boat. The hooks to draw them into the main plot are all where to be used as and when they need to be. 1988 was another busy year for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, seeing as it did the publication of The Power Behind the Throne, the fourth chapter of The Enemy Within, Something Rotten in Kislev, a series of filler adventures set between the fourth and fifth chapters of the campaign, the republishing of the first two chapters of the campaign in a single hardback called Warhammer Adventure, the republishing of Death on the Right as a hardback, and the long-awaited release of the Realm of Chaos supplement. When I say long-awaited, I'm not exaggerating here. The first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battle contained a reference to a future as yet unnamed Chaos-themed book. It was then finally named in the first Citadel Compendium in November of 1983, promising, amongst other things, rules of role-playing a champion of chaos. When the first book, Realm of Chaos Slaves to Darkness, was released in 1988, it received a so-so reception from those who purely played the role-playing game whereas those who played the battle game absolutely lapped it up. I was lucky, I did both. Why so-so? Well, firstly, this book only covered two of the four Chaos Gods, meaning that we'd have to wait another couple of years to get the full picture. Secondly, while the book contained a ton of background and detail, most of it was aimed at Warhammer Fantasy battle players. Indeed, the young upstart game of 40k got an entire chapter dedicated to the Dark Millennium, while the rules for Champions of Chaos as player characters in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay were confined to a single page, with the proviso that these rules were much better for creating NPC villains. For those who had waited over five years for this role-playing supplement, this was disappointing to say the least. Of the two adventure books released, Power Behind the Throne is by far the better one. A dramatic scenario set within the city of Middenheim, it places the PCs at the centre of some heavy-duty politics, and it's through their interaction with the many detailed NPCs that they will succeed. These detailed NPCs, whilst being the scenario's strongest point, also mean that a lot of pre-work was required for the GM running this adventure. There is information given on where various characters are at various points throughout the scenario, so it is essential that the GM keeps track of this, as well as what effect other PC interactions will have on the NPC's responses. However, by far the weakest part of this adventure is the simple fact of getting the PCs to Middenheim in the first place. Unless the GM has prepared some hooks to transition from Death on the Reich to Power Behind the Throne, this is going to feel forced. Most PCs don't want to give up their lovely boat after all. Indeed, when this adventure was reprinted years later, the new publishers attempted to solve this problem by including another, shorter scenario as a link. Something rotten in Kislev is, well, rotten, actually, that's unfair, and largely an excuse to make a terrible pun. Something Rotten simply doesn't fit in with the themes established earlier in the Enemy Within campaign. Whilst the other adventures feature a large degree of NPC interaction and investigation, 
and conjure up the atmosphere of being embroiled in a broader conspiracy, Something Rotten throws that out of the window in favour of a more high-fantasy, questing vibe. Also, it takes place outside of the Empire, an area which the previous modules have spent a lot of time establishing in the players' minds. It also features an extremely forced and slightly contrived way of getting the players to go to Kislev in the first place. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of players who, if I played the a powerful NPC comes and tells you that you have no choice but to go to this place and do a quest card, they would roll their eyes and seek to derail things at the very first opportunity. All that being said, as a standalone piece, it's actually okay. It features three interesting scenarios and the background that Kislev makes for an interesting read. You could easily turn this into a campaign setting of its own. However, it doesn't really fit within the rest of the Enemy Within campaign. Indeed, it's almost like GW thought, how can we make this sell better? I know, say it's part of that campaign that's been flying off the shelves. Come 1989, the production of new material was slowing, and GW were rapidly coming to realise that they would turn a much tighter profit by focusing on making little plastic soldiers than by printing weighty role-playing supplements. However, we did see the release of The Restless Dead, Warhammer Adventure, which was the first three parts of The Enemy Within, collected within one volume, Warhammer City of Chaos, a reprinting of Warhammer City and Power Behind the Throne as a single volume, a soft-packed version of the main rulebook, and, fanfare please, the final part of The Enemy Within campaign, The Empire in Flames. The Restless Dead is a collection of scenarios from White Dwarf with tips on how to insert them into the enemy within or run them as a campaign in their own right. The quality of these vary from really quite good in the case of Grapes of Wrath to the patently ridiculous in the case of Eureka. This is Restless Dead's biggest problem. The GM will have to do a lot of work to make the adventures thematically consistent if they want to establish them as a campaign otherwise the whole thing feels disjointed. Each chapter includes tips in doing this, but it feels a bit like hard work. The book also includes some other White Dwarf articles on career advancement and training, magic, magic items and revised combat rules. Handy if you don't have the original articles, but mm, filler otherwise. The Empire in Flames was the long-anticipated ending to the Enemy Within campaign. As I mentioned earlier, the previous chapters in the campaign did an excellent job of stirring up that feeling of being embroiled in a conspiracy, where often the PC's investigative skills serve them far better than a strong sword arm. When I was talking about something rotten in Kislev, I made the point that what I didn't like about it was that it felt shoehorned into the overall campaign. The adventures themselves were solid and interesting, as a standalone mini-campaign, it'd be a lot of fun. It's just that in the broader context of the enemy within, they simply didn't fit thematically into what had been established before. The material presented in Empire and Flames is also at odds thematically with what has been established before and is also not very good into the bargain. I'm not going to give too much away. Some people might still want to play in this after all, but on page three of the book, there is this little nugget of wisdom under running the adventure. 
Empire and Flames is not an adventure like Power Behind the Throne. In Power Behind the Throne, the PCs could try any one of dozens of approaches to get at the information they needed. This is an adventure with a linear plotline. Yeah, this is a railroad job. Now, in fairness, it suggests that the GM avoids at all costs making the players feel that they are being led by the nose and suggests creating side quests and encounters. However, all of the previous modules had this as part of the main body of the text. Indeed, this was one of the great strengths of Death in the Reich. Why should this be extra busy work for the GM running the finale? In terms of setup, the adventure makes no reference to the events of Something Rotten in Kislev, further reinforcing the impression that the module was created as a standalone and tacked onto the enemy within campaign to sell it. What is worse, there's a feeling that nothing that happened in previous adventures actually meant or impacted upon anything. Again, without spoiling too much, consider the protagonist in Shadows. He has on him a clue which leads to PCs trying to track down a villain in Death of the Reich. Likewise, the cult that the players accidentally stumble upon in the very first module show up throughout the campaign. This is not the case with Empire and Flames. Nothing from previous books is really referenced. Nothing that happened before matters. This is basically just a standalone piece. For the climax to the campaign, this is unforgivable. There's also the perpetual problem that is seen in some campaigns, where the PCs are reduced pretty much to the role of observers, whilst the great and the good of the land make decisions and occasionally send the players off on errands. However, by far the most egregious mistake made by those who wrote The Enemy Within is the fact that rather than have the players track down clues and file the machinations of, well, you know, the enemy within, this adventure instead opts for a wilderness trek, followed by a dungeon crawl, and then a boss battle. Oh, and the fact that the book has a bright yellow cover that seems completely at odds with the colour scheme established in the other books, yeah, it's a petty point, but it makes it look so odd. 1990 saw only one Warhammer Fantasy roleplay released by Games Workshop themselves, the companion volume to the first Realm of Chaos book, this time focusing on the gods Zinch and Nurgle and entitled The Lost and the Damned. It's a well-produced book with some great fiction and brilliant illustrations, but this is largely fantasy battle in 40k territory. Anything that Warhammer Fantasy roleplay GMs would take for it would have to be converted into that system to make it work. 1990 was also the year that GW moved publishing of any material for Warhammer Fantasy roleplay over to Flame Publications, an internal division dedicated to RPGs. Their tenure wasn't long. In 1992, due to financial difficulties, Flame ceased their operations. During that two-year period, they published the Doomstones campaign, two reprintings of the character pack, Lishmaster, a reworking of an old second edition Warhammer fantasy battle scenario, the Warhammer Companion, which was really just more old white dwarf articles, and the scenario books Death's Dark Shadow and Castle Drakenfells. Doomstones was not well received, being as it was adapted from old advanced Dungeons and Dragons material. What you have is four fairly generic high fantasy dungeon crawls 
that don't fit thematically with what has been established as a setting of Warhammer fantasy roleplaying. Death Stark Shadow features a series of scenarios set in the very detailed village of Krutzhofen, so named as it is the crossroads where four different trade routes meet. I say very detailed as nearly every house in the village is detailed, which kind of feels like overkill. It's not a bad supplement, but it feels very high fantasy. In fairness to the authors, Warhammer itself was switching to a much more high fantasy feel by this point in time, so some of that probably bled through into this publication. Castle Drakenfels was a source book detailing the setting and some of the personalities from Jack Evil's novel Drakenfels. This novel was extremely popular with fans, so it was only natural that a source book would be produced. In fact, in the September 1989 issue of White Dwarf, number 117, the stats for the various main characters had already been printed. The book itself is okay. It gives an atmospheric location in which to have a dungeon crawl, but given the nature of the encounters detailed, especially those with Drakenfels himself, a party would have to be pretty high power to contend with them. A couple of scenarios are included, and there's even tips for using one of these instead of something rotten in Kislev as the interlude chapter in the Enemy Within campaign. Drakenfels is an intriguing villain, but his appearance was in line with the changes fans were seeing with Warhammer Fantasy Battle at the time, namely a move to focus on the more high-powered hero characters. Drakenfels was also the last publication produced by Flame. And so it was that in 1992, GW's first RPG, which had promised and been promised so much, went out with a whimper. That was until 1995, when Hogshead Publishing received the license to publish Warhammer Fantasy roleplay material. It was back. Although, was it? 1995 began probably somewhat predictably, with the reprint of the main rulebook, a reprint of the first two chapters of The Enemy Within, and the publication of Apocrypha Now, which was a collection of White Dwarf articles. This was fine for people who were looking to get into the game for the first time, but for veterans, this wasn't terribly exciting. However, this year also saw the publication of The Dying of the Light, a campaign set in the wasteland against an apocalyptic background. Like the Restless Dead, it suffers from the fact that rather than it being a coherent campaign, it was a selection of individual adventures loosely stitched together. The fact that each of the chapters was written by a different author didn't help in establishing a consistent tone and feel to the campaign. Between 1996 and 2002, Hogshead reprinted seven books from the Doomstones and Enemy Within campaigns, as well as Death's Dark Shadow. In terms of new content, they came out with a fifth chapter for the Doomstones campaign, a GM screen and reference pack, a guide to the city of Marienburg, which to be fair itself was based off old articles from White Dwarf, a compilation of the best of Warpstone magazine, a dwarf sourcebook, and Realms of Sorcery. If Realm of Chaos had been long awaited, Realms of Sorcery had been anticipated even longer. It was mentioned in the original Warhammer Fantasy roleplay in 1986, but I seem to recall references to it in Warhammer Fantasy Battle's 2nd edition, which had been released in 1984. Therefore, 
When it finally appeared in 2001, it was an understatement to say that the Warhammer community were intrigued. We'll discuss this more when we talk about the system, but it's fair to say that Realms of Sorcery had an uphill battle on its hands. For starters, the Warhammer fantasy roleplay magic system was, to put it mildly, a bit crap. It had clearly been ported straight from 2nd edition Warhammer Fantasy Battle and that showed. A lot of the spells were much more suited to grand sweeping battles than they were to individual adventures. Aside from the inclusion of ingredients and petty magic, the system seemed more or less the same as it had been in 1984. The expectation amongst a lot of fans was that realms of sorcery would remedy these shortcomings. So how did it do? The honest answer? It was a damp squib. Rather than revamp the existing magic system, what Hogshead seemed to try and do with Realms of Sorcery was cram in more of Warhammer Fantasy Battle's existing magic system into Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. One of the most glaring problems with this was the fact that by 2001, the setting of what was considered canon in Warhammer Fantasy Battle had long since passed that of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. While the latter still exposed its low magic everyman setting, Warhammer Fantasy Battle was much more magic intensive and high fantasy. This is nowhere more apparent than in the first chapter of Realms of Sorcery, A History of Magic, where the current, for 2001, Warhammer Fantasy Battle setting is crammed into the current Warhammer Fantasy roleplay setting. Apparently, battle magic has only been around for the last 200 years or so, Apparently it was a gift from the elves, which begs the question, what exactly were wizards casting in battle prior to this? Also, clerics, they use battle magic in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, what did the gods give them prior to that? Chapter 3 breaks the setting even further by introducing the concept of wizards needing a license to be a wizard. Something as patently ridiculous as this takes us firmly out of a grim world of perilous adventure where wizards are rare and feared and straight into Harry Potter territory where they all go to universities and run magic shops. The rest of this book is given over to spells of various different kinds, but all it succeeds in doing is painting a picture that magic is common and readily available. Take for example Warhammer Fantasy Battles Colour Magic. According to this book, Colour magic is where wizards go to universities to learn. The only people who have mastered colour magic are wizards of level 4 and above. To have the concept of a magic university suggests a substantial body of people are learning this, which means a correspondingly high number of faculty members. To serve as the 12 colours of magic mentioned means you're looking at relegating hundreds of wizards of at least level 4 to teaching and clerical duties. Like I said, this feels much more Hogwarts than Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. With this abomination delivered, Hogshead handed the license for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay back to GW in 2002, signalling the end of the line for the third time. All was silent for two years before Games Workshop announced the creation of Black Industries, whose main task would be the publishing of the brand new 2nd edition of Warhammer Fantasy Rope. This appeared in 2005, and between 2005 and 2007, Black Industries aggressively churned out brand new material. 
These publications were not reprints of what went before. This was Warhammer fantasy roleplay brought up to date to match the current Warhammer fantasy battle setting, in this case set in the aftermath of the ill-fated Storm of Chaos narrative campaign for Warhammer fantasy battle. The art was also given a refresh. Gone were the moody dark images from the original Warhammer Fantasy roleplay and instead the imagery of Warhammer Fantasy Battle abounded. Huge oversized hammers and axes were everywhere, firearms, previously the rarest of the rare, seemed to be as common as swords, dwarfs sported impractical mohawks, chaos had gone from being the enemy within to very much being the enemy in your face and wizards looked a lot more, eh, uh, wizardy. Whereas in the first edition, the picture for the wizard's apprentice career showed some poor soul lugging around heavy things for his master, the wizard's apprentice in second ed has flowing robes and a staff with a skull on top. Guess she must have got that along with her wizard's license. In 2008, Fantasy Flight Games took over publication of Warhammer 2nd edition before announcing a year later that they were publishing the 3rd edition. This new edition was more like a board game than an RPG, using special dice only available from Fantasy Flight Games and a variety of cards and counters. Between 2009 and 2013, a huge amount of publications were produced before Fantasy Flight abruptly announced that 3rd edition was complete. The license stayed with them for a couple of years before passing back once again to Games Workshop. Finally, in 2017, Games Workshop announced that Cubicle 7 would be publishing a 4th edition that would very much be in the mould of the 1st and 2nd editions. So far, they've released around a dozen or so supplements and have also started reworking the Enemy Within campaign for this new edition, including a replacement for something rotten in Kislev and, fanfare please, a brand new ending. In 2020, it looks like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay has gone back to its roots and has a bright future on the horizon. Hopefully this bright future will be grim and perilous. That's done. And that was part one of episode one, the history of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Hopefully it went down a bit better than episode one of Star Wars did. Tune in to our second episode to find out more about the system and setting, and the third part to hear us wittering on about our memories of the game. We are a semi-regular podcast about old school roleplaying games. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us on Twitter at SavePodcast or email us at roll.2.save.pod at gmail.com. Yeah, that's a lot of dots. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Roll to Save. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a review on your podcast directory of choice. Apparently, those five-star reviews will do wonders for our visibility. Thanks again for listening. 